RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy, as always, that you are here to listen to this thing that we call a podcast. To start things off, I want to thank everybody for great feedback on our discussion with Leapin' Lanny Poffo. Really enjoyed that, and it's the first and only time, probably in the history of this podcast, I am going to write and recite a poem, a limerick, as Lanny Dooley pointed out last week. But thank you for the feedback. If you want to communicate with me on Twitter, at David Penzer, all one word is the best way to do it, at Penzer Ringside as well. And uh, we have an interesting guest for you today, one of the most unique personalities in professional wrestling history, and I don't say that lightly. And uh, looking forward to talking with him about something that doesn't get spoken about much, and that's the beginning of his career uh, before he was Raven. And I'm speaking of the host of the Raven Effect, Scotty Levy. Uh, better known to you guys as the character Raven. So uh, looking forward to talking to Scotty, longtime friends, and uh, it's always fun talking to a friend you haven't talked to in a while, especially when there's such an interesting personality and an interesting personality he is. And we re- I really want to delve in to the early part of his career. Uh, he was on a totally different road than he, <laughs> he ended up. Let's just say he did a 180. Uh, about halfway through his career, and uh, we're going to talk to him about the beginnings of his career and hear what made him create the Raven character. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to City Ringside, host of the Raven Effect, the one and only Scott Levy Raven. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week has had a long and storied career, both as himself and a character called Raven. You probably know him best as the latter, and he is the host, of course, of The Raven Effect on Westwood One, uh, his own podcast. Welcome, Raven. Scotty, how are you? Good, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. I've wanted to have you for a while, so thank you for being here. Um, no, no problem, man. So I had never heard your podcast and uh, as you know, I we were at StarCast, and you did a live edition of The Raven Effect, and I was the, I don't know, uh, they say host, but I really didn't host it. I introed you and your, your sidekick. And, you were uh, the ring announcer. You were yeah, the ring I was the ring announcer. So I, I started listening to this podcast, and part of me is like I, I have no clue what I'm listening to, and part of me was like I couldn't stop listening. Uh, yeah, that's what it, it's supposed to be. That it's it's supposed to be the uh, theater of the absurd. I mean, it's it's you know because I'm a pro wrestler, it's it's listed under sports, but it really should be listed under comedy because it's just we it's me and my buddy um, Chad Damiani or Busby Berkeley as his nickname is. Sure, um, just discussing stuff, and he's hilarious, and uh, and we're just two funny people having the most absurd conversations you can have and you know and it works 
Yeah, it, 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 I would. You said it, not me, but I would say it's absurd. But it's absurd to the point where you can't stop listening to it. It's uh it's yeah, it's like a exactly. Little, it's, it's Andy Kaufman esque. Yeah, it's it's designed to be. It's designed to make you laugh and to have a good time. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a conversation. Basically, me and him, if we talked on the phone during the week at all, which we don't, because then we'd run out of material. Sure. Well, we probably wouldn't, but we you know, but we don't, but. It's basically the conversation that we would have if we if we just called each other up during the week and talked. So we just wait till we wait till Wednesday. And, and um, I'm sorry, I'm out of breath. I'm doing cardio. Um, <coughs> we um, wait till Wednesday and then we just talk for an hour and a half. Yeah, it's definitely something to listen to uh, on Westwood One if you uh, have never heard it. If you're a fan of like Andy Kaufman type comedy, uh, uh, kind of. Uh, off the off the beaten path, I definitely recommend it for sure. But thank you for being on this pod. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say I highly recommend if you have a friend that you really enjoy talking to, uh, you know, and you talk and you talk to him for an hour, hour and a half, just get a podcast and just then get paid for it. Well, you get paid for it. Not everybody gets paid for it. But well, that's a- I know, but I'm saying, <laughs> but it's 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 the best way to have a conversation because. You know, Anything we talk about, you know, is just, there's almost nothing that we can't talk about on the air because we'll talk about pretty much everything, you know, except like if, you know, if he has, he's a screenwriter. So unless he has a gig that he can't talk about yet or I got something, you know, like I did something for TNA recently and um, and uh, and I couldn't talk about it. So other than say I was at TNA, but I couldn't tell him what the angle was, you know, until it airs. Oh, that's right. I read about that. How was that? How was that going back to to Impact Wrestling? It was fun. It, it was totally different. It wasn't like going back to Impact because it was in Vegas, so it wasn't in Nashville or, uh, or Disney. It um whole new office, whole new talent. I mean, other than Abyss, I don't think there was anybody that was there from before. No, oh Scott Demore. I mean, but Scott Demore and. Uh, yeah, uh, well, P.D. Williams was there, um, but and Dreamer. I mean, Dreamer was there at TNA for a little while, you know, when I was there. But I mean, for the most part, it's all new people. So it's just like, it's like, um, it's like getting, like I could imagine, like you know, you're still playing the same sport, but you're playing for a different team, you know. Yeah, I was. Uh, I went back and did some ring announcing for them uh, a little over a year ago with the new. Uh, group in place, uh, Demore and uh, Don Callis and Ed Nordholm, who we had on on this show, and uh, recently, and uh, I, I I thought it was uh, very refreshing. It was a uh, uh, great great atmosphere. Everybody's has a yeah. positive attitude. Uh, yeah, it's a really 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 that's a great word. Refreshing. It's a really that's that's the per- perfect word to describe it. Yeah. So I'm a fan of theirs, and I try to. Uh, to promote them as much as possible because, uh, you know, they're, they're- oh, wait, let me, before we get any further, I just want to ask, I always wondered, how did you become a ring announcer? <laughs> Look at, you're the true podcast. host flipping the questions, uh, on the, on the, ho- on the host. Um, how did I become a ring announcer? You want the whole sort of details? Well, I always wanted to know. And, and we never, we've, I always wanted to know. We never talked about it. So I figured I might as well learn something while I'm listening. 
So um, I was a DJ. I was a high school radio DJ, and I also did, you know, bar mitzvahs and sweet 16s and all that. So, <laughs> so I could talk on a mic. I was a huge wrestling mark. And uh, my father's a psychologist. And um, there was I don't know if you ever heard of the guy. There was a guy named Dr. Red Roberts. He was an indie guy yeah. out of South Florida yeah. who was also a shoot psychologist and um, still is a shoot that was psychologist. your dad. No, 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 that no, no. But my dad had a, a, a colleague who was very good friends with Dr. Red Roberts. And so he put us together and they had an office global wrestling association. Unlike the global wrestling you work for in Texas, this was a penny stock market deal back when Hulkamania was running wild. And, um, <laughs> so they, they, they made a little money and they hired Bob Roop as a booker and, uh, Larry Simon, uh, Larry Malenko, uh, worked there, uh, in the office and it was in Davie. I lived in like five minutes away. So I just started going there and Larry Simon, Simon sort of kind of would teach me about the wrestling business, and I became really good friends with Bob. And after Bob and uh, after the the company went out of business, Bob Roop and I bought the ring and started doing indie shows. So I was doing the ring announcing and setting up the ring and all that exciting what stuff. Was this? this would be 89, 90. Really? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, it's funny is 87 when I was getting ready to go into wrestling. Um, you know, I was looking for a wrestling school, and I wanted to go to Malenko's because, you know, I was a big fan of, you know, because I lived in Florida when um, I was a big fan of Florida Championship Wrestling. And I thought, man, that'd be great because so many people told me about it, but I couldn't find any information. Is there a phone number or nothing? And uh, so I ended up going to the Monster Factory in New Jersey. But, you know, if I could have, I would have went to Malenko school. So who knows what would have happened then? Yeah, it would have been uh, would it, uh, uh, if we would have hooked up there. It would have been three Jews. We could have got did a Hanukkah or a, or a Seder uh, or something like that. I'm not three I'm, Jews walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah, get Busby to, to do the rest of that joke. So, um, so anyway, long story short, uh, Bob Roop and I bought the ring. We were doing indie shows. Bob gets a call from his old friend, Ole Anderson. Ole said, I just got, to, uh, took over as booker for WCW. Would you like to be an agent? And Bob said, sure. And I said, Hey, Bob, put in a good word. And he said, sure. And like, you know, I thought I'd never hear from him again, but sure enough, uh, he talked to, uh, Jody Hamilton, who, uh, used to book the enhancement talent and, uh, I started driving guys up, uh, booking enhancement talent from the state of Florida, and uh, Tony Gilliam got fired, thankfully, and they, need, <laughs> they needed a second-string ring announcer, and I got the gig, and then Gary Capetta quit, and I got that gig, and the rest is history. Wow. A lot of right place, wow. right times, a lot of working my rear end off to try to live my dream. So uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what year was that? Where did you get your break? I uh, started driving guys up in 91 and started ring announcing mid 92 and by 90 wow. by 90 the end of 94 uh beginning of 95 when Nitro kicked off I was I was all that was left and I So were you there were you there when I was Scotty Flamingo? I was yeah I was kind of, uh stooging around uh getting uh, the uh the, you know, I used to ha uh, walk around getting the guys to sign in. You know, they had to sign a release that was all on one page. They signed right. their And, uh, you know, so I, I was stooging I was around. I wasn't ring announcing back then, uh, but I was there, yes.
Yeah, because I thought I remember Tony Gillum being there at that point, but yeah. So, just curious. No, no, no. Uh, actually, there's a lot of what I was going to ask you about in, in talking about that. So um, I'm assuming you grew up as a wrestling fan. If you decide, of course. Uh, of course. What 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 area did you what you watch when you were a kid? What area did you grow up? Well, I started out and uh, I lived I lived in Philadelphia till I was ten or eleven. So I watched WWWWWF. <laughs> sure. I think that's the right amount of W's. There's like seven W's back then. I think there. I think you did one extra, but nobody will know. Oh, okay. And so I watched that. Then I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh wow. Um. Yeah, my dad was. Um. He um. He said we're moving either to Hawaii or Milwaukee. <laughs> we, we all voted for Hawaii. Hawaii didn't make it. Talk um, about heaven and hell, huh? Jeez. Yeah. Well, it was because. He, like, you know, he, we weren't devout Jews at all. I mean, you know, not religious. I wasn't bar mitzvah, didn't, you know, that's just not the way we rolled. But he started getting like a, like, trying to think how old he would have been. Probably 75, 76. He probably would have been 40. Yeah, so he's probably having a midlife crisis and not midlife crisis, but midlife age where he feels like he needs to address his roots. So we went and uh, moved to Milwaukee so he could work for the Milwaukee Jewish Chronicle. There you go. Is it true that he was an editor for the National Enquirer? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. So he went to, so he was a city editor in Philadelphia in the Philadelphia Daily News, really well respected journalist. Decides to go off to Beaton, uh, work for the Milwaukee Jewish Chronicle, which I didn't even know there was a Milwaukee Jewish Chronicle, but there was. And then from there, he went to the National Enquirer, the highest paid newspaper in the world. So is that when Dave, he, the number, he was a number that, two guy there for years. Is that when David Pecker owned it? No, it was way before that. It's when the mobs, when a uh, generoso um, Pope owned it, who was uh, mob adjacent. So did you, when you were a kid and you would see that like on the supermarket, when your, your mom would take you food shopping, uh, would you go back and ask your dad, like what was true and what wasn't? Or you guys, he said, he swore that everything could be proved in court. In fact, they never, back then, they never lost a lawsuit, ever. Like the one they supposedly lost, the Carol Burnett one, right. they won on the appeal. They never lost a lawsuit because everything back then they printed was a shoot. Well, that's I started uh, realizing that around the O.J. Simpson deal because they got yeah. all these scoops on O.J. Simpson and everybody's like, nah. And then like two months later, it all came, you know, two, three, four months later, everything that came out was true. So, uh, yeah, they, they got they paid for the like literally like if my dad, my dad was the number two guy there. If he would have been at the Washington Post or the New York Times in the same position, he'd have made half the money. I mean, they were literally the highest paying newspaper in the world by a lot. Wow. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I was happy about that. Plus, Florida, you know, who can argue with living in Florida, South Florida? So where'd you live in South Florida? Lake Worth, West Palm Beach. Gotcha. What year would this have been? 76 to move there. And I went to high school there. You know, so I was there for, I was there 76 to 82, graduated 82, then went to University of Delaware. Oh, so like me, you grew up on championship wrestling from Florida. Yeah, that's why I wanted to work. For, that's why I wanted to go to Malenko school because, uh, you know, the I, I felt like, you know, if Chris Champion, you know, he wasn't a big guy. And I figured he's a really good talker. I figured I could talk. 
least I thought I could. And uh, I figured, you know, that's the place to go. Plus, <laughs> I, I love telling the story, but Ricky Santana hates it. But this is how arrogant I was. I was watching Florida Championship Wrestling, and I thought to myself, and I saw Ricky, and I think he was the tag champs with uh, David, you know, Fidel Sierra. Sure. And uh, I go, man, I'm better looking than he is because he was supposed to be a pretty boy character. <laughs> I go, I'm better looking than he is. I'm a better, I, I'm a better athlete than he. I'm bigger than he is. If he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> I'm yeah, sure he uh, hates that. So how you're... arrogant is that? How arrogant is that to think? But thank God I had that arrogance because that's what enabled me to go, you know, move back up north and go to Larry Sharp's Monster Factory. And and the funny thing is, is when I went there, like I told all my friends, I was going to be a pro wrestler. And uh, so the first day I go to school. The bumps, like, you know how you take back bumps the first time you take them? You bang your head on the mat, you know, completely all the time because you're not used to tucking your chin. I've never done that, but I've heard the stories. I've seen it. Oh, my head hurt. I had a concussion. Well, I realize now I had a concussion, but I didn't realize it at the time. And, man, I was in so much pain. All I wanted to do was go home and crawl back home into bed. But I was like, now I told all my friends I was going to be a pro wrestler. I can't return after one day. I got to stick this out. So I stuck it out, and then it got easy. So you grow up in a, in a, a pretty professional household. Your dad worked uh, second in command of the National Choir. You're a smart guy. Get your college degree. What did your parents say when you came home and said, oh, by the way, I'm going to wrestling school? Well, not only that, I took a semester off of college to go into Marine Corps. So I was also a U.S. Marine at the time. Uh, I just did the reserves in, uh, you know, the two weeks uh, Every summer and one weekend a month. So, sure. But yeah, but so, the, you know, so me going, you know, Jewish kid with brains going into the Marine Corps, what's that all about? And then, and then I tell them I want to be a pro wrestler, but yeah, they weren't happy, but they were, they wanted me to be happy. Sure. So they're like, look, as long as you're happy and this is what you want to do, go. It doesn't work. Have your college degree to fall back on. Have you ever fallen back on that, by the way? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not I at all. I didn't but think I, had, so. I had so much fun at college. It was well worth whatever they spent for me to go there. <laughs> I'm sure it was. I only made it two years, but it was uh, uh, it was well worth the money that uh, my parents spent. So uh, you started as Scotty the Body. Uh, you were, I think, one of the first new, like quote unquote, newsletter darlings. Uh, would that be accurate? Yeah, I don't know if I was the first. I, I just I only started reading the newsletter at that point. So I don't know what went before me, but yeah, I was kind of a darling, but not a big darling, not like uh, Austin was, you know, because I was in Portland most of it for two years, which nobody, you know, it's so far away. Nobody had any, you know, reports on it. So, so you, I wasn't, a, I was, I was, I, I was in an indie, I was like a half an indie darling, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember reading the kayfabe sheets and, you know, people would talk about your mic work and uh, you had a, as you as people could probably tell if they didn't already know, you have a sarcastic, dry sense of humor, which is uh, pretty funny. Uh, you know, it, it made a good contrast to the, like a play-by-play guy. Uh, you did get yeah, to... Wait, mentioning that, that's one of my greatest, proudest achievement, uh, proudest, uh, I guess, achievement is getting to commentate with, you know, be the color man for Gordon Soley. That was my next Florida. bullet point. I, I could tell. <laughs> I saw where you were going. So, and, uh, so yeah, yeah. It was, <clears throat> he was the greatest. I mean, I grew up on him. So, I mean, it, there was nobody better. Um, 
And uh, and he was so amazing at what he did. And but the best part was, so I used to make fun of Coach John Heath, who was right. uh, who was the the straight color man, like you know the baby face color man, I guess. Right. You know, because he, he looked like Coach from Cheers, <laughs> and he looked like he's a hundred years old, but he was a he was a badass though. He was like seventy five, and he was still a shooter. Like you know, he was a rest- college wrestling coach or something, and he wanted to stretch me so bad. Like, he would have killed me, too. I would have been so embarrassing getting beat up by a 75-year-old man. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt in my mind he would have. Uh, yeah, oh, me neither. Me neither. So I got to thinking the other day. I'm 52, probably started buying gifts for the holidays for my father when I was 10, maybe, at the school craft fair. So that means 40 years I've been buying Every year, a holiday gift, and what do you what do you get somebody for forty years in a row who has everything to start with? My brother probably I've been buying for thirty years, same thing. Brother in law, fifteen years, same thing. And then I am not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. I got a knock on the door right before we started taping this podcast, and I got in the mail delivered to my door a Harry's shave set. I got the Truman gift set. There's also the Winter Winston and the Winter Winston Deluxe. And I decided, what the hell? I'm going to try it right now. I left my producer hanging, went and shaved, and I wanted to see the quality of the Harry's product. We all know, ladies and gentlemen, how expensive razors could be in drugstores. And I will tell you, without a doubt, this is better quality than anything I have ever bought in a drugstore. It makes an awesome gift, and let me tell you why. Harry's makes long-lasting quality products at a super reasonable price. They have a 4.5 out of 5-star rating on Trustpilot, and they make German-engineered blades for as low as $2 each. Like I said, much cheaper than if you have to walk into a drugstore and it comes delivered right to your front door. It's also ready to gift. Sets come in a handsome gift box. They start at just $10, and there's a 100% quality guarantee. If someone doesn't love it, although I don't see why they wouldn't, returns are quick and hassle-free. As a special offer for fans of the show, we have partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including our limited edition holiday sets, when you go to harrys.com slash ringside. That's harrys.com slash ringside. Plus, you'll get free shipping if you act within the next couple days. This offer is for new and returning customers and is only available for the holidays. Each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle with an option to engrave. German engineered five blade cartridges that provide a close comfortable shave, foaming shave gel for a rich lather, a travel cover to protect your blades and a handsome holiday gift box. Or just want something for yourself? Redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th. So act now. Go to harrys.com slash ringside to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash ringside. How does a new, a, a green wrestler come down to Florida and end up uh, sitting next to the dean of wrestling, Gordon Soley, as sort of a, 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 a dry wit, you know, uh, uh, color commentator kind of. Uh... Pure, pure effing luck. Um, they, uh, I was, I went to Memphis, it was my first territory. So I, so I went to Larry Shepard's Monster Factory for like a month. He goes, there's nothing else I can teach you because. I mean, I knew how to bump. I knew how to do headlocks and arm drags and, 
yeah, you know, like he said, you have to be in front of people, which sure. is true. So for the next nine months, I emailed every territory, and there used to be a lot of them. And I'd send a video every three weeks and a letter and a phone call, you know, just to bring myself up. And uh, I'd still go to the school to practice, like, you know, to try and work on moves, I guess. Sure. But, but for all intents and purposes, after a month, I mean, I needed to be on the road. So so I emailed Portland. I mean, not email. There was no email. Uh, I, you know, you send a videotape. It was VHS. It wasn't even a DVD yet. Sure. Um, and there was no internet. So you send, you mail a letter and you mail a tape, a VHS tape, and you call up. And then so there was Portland. Uh, and Don Owens was always like, oh, Jesus Christ, the mills are shutting down. Don't waste <laughs> your money on a VHS tape. <laughs> like, how am I going to get a job then? So, and there was uh, Vancouver Wrestling, Calgary Stampede. There was um, Puerto Rico, Memphis. Uh, Kansas City, I think, uh, and Florida had restarted up because they went shut down for a little while. And right. they were, re- or no, they hadn't restarted yet. They hadn't restarted yet. There was Memphis. Continental was restarting, I think. So I, uh, finally, I got to, I got a hold of, uh, finally after nine months, Lawler decided to bring me down to Memphis. And so I was there for like two and a half months. And uh, basically, when Florida was restarting, Gordon, Steve Graham, I mean Steve, Steve Kern, and Mike Graham would uh, come to uh, Tennessee to do shoot some matches, to shoot some footage for the Florida show to get it started. Right. And they would do Memphis TV, and they just used the footage, and that's how they met me. And Mike Graham liked me, thought I was a good talker, and so when they let me go in Memphis, he said to bring me down to Florida. So I was like, great, I get to go home for Florida Championship Wrestling. How great is that? Yeah, and just they were, to, like, they were running like two, three shows a, a week. You know, not enough to make any money on, but I got a side job as a bouncer. You know, and I, and since I'd only been one place where I had a job, you know, I got bounced my way through wrestling school. You know, um, then in Memphis, I didn't need to have a second job because you work six, seven nights a week. Um, and then in Florida, I had to go back to being a bouncer. And then uh, I think... Let's see. And then after Florida, I went to Vancouver for a month and then Portland for two years. You know, and once I was in Portland, you know, I never really had to work a second job again, you know. But, uh, so yeah, by, I mean, but go ahead. By the way, just to put a period at the end of the sentence, that time when Gordon and Steve Kern and Mike Graham were coming to uh, Memphis, that was right at the end of the Global Wrestling Alliance that I got broke in with because Gordon oh. was Gordon was with them, just to put a time uh, stamp on it. Gordon was with right. Global Wrestling, and then Graham and Kern and him left. Uh, Graham and Kern met with him and said, uh, we're going to start, you know, Florida Championship Wrestling again. Uh, why don't you leave these jabronis and come with us? And so that was right when that <laughs> was. But uh, so I got a question for you. When did you – at what point did you realize that you were good on a microphone? Um, when, uh, I, I, I just assumed I would be good. So, and then I didn't get any promos in Memphis and then, uh, in Florida, they started letting me commentate. So, I mean, and then, but then commentating is totally different from a promo. Like my, like my commentary skills, 
were way more advanced than my promo skills at that point because eventually I get into, I mean, my promo, like in Portland, I got to cut all kinds of crazy ass promos, but, um, but I didn't become the promo person that I'm known for until probably ECW. That's where it really all clicked together. But commentary, I just always had a knack for um, because I could just, you know, stream of consciousness, think on my feet. Sure. I'm, I used to watch that, uh, the, the Florida Championship Wrestling. And it was, you know, I had grown up as a wrestling fan, uh, 77, 78, 79, 80. And, uh, and you know, all through the '80s, and and you know, it was treated very seriously. And you you got on there, and did your stuff with Gordon, and I found myself like laughing uh, at some of your your one-liners. Uh, it was it was totally different. Uh, did anybody ever? Was there any other than Coach John Heath? Was there any ever any heat over that? No, just Coach John Heath. And and that was more just because you know it could. He thought I was being disrespectful, which I guess I was, but unintentionally, you know, I didn't know any better. Sure. But, and I thought, you know, it's on the show, I'm being a heel, so I didn't really, you know, I would never have talked to him like that in person, you know, just on the show. That was around the time right after Piper started doing uh, the color commentary on the Superstation where he would do – it wasn't the same style, but similar, you know, he would, people would laugh and at his one-liners and stuff. And I think maybe if you'd have done that before Piper uh, reached the level that he did, it might have been a different story. Do you ever think about that or – If what? If, I, if, if what happened? If if because Piper was on the Superstation TBS as yeah, a but that was like eighty that was like eighty two though wasn't it Yeah, wouldn't that have been when you were with uh, Florida? No, Chip? this is eighty nine. This is no eighty eight. That's eighty eight. Oh, so you really were the first one? Well, no, I mean Piper. Well, here's here's the way I, I was actually had I was doing a podcast yesterday with a uh, with a Portland guy for his podcast and. Uh, he he was uh, he 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 snapped out the timeline for me because I didn't really know it, but yeah, I think he said Piper was like eighty one, eighty two, and then Jesse Ventura was like eighty four, eighty five, which is I love Jesse Ventura's commentary, which is why I took the name Scotty the Body because of Jesse the Body. Not thinking that, also also knowing that, calling myself Scotty the Body but not being the greatest body would get me heat. Not sure. realizing. It would get me heat with the boys because they <laughs> thought it was I was being a shooting, you know. I'm yeah. like, no, I don't think I have a greatest body, not at all. But so, hey, regardless, the um, but so yeah, so Jesse Ventura was doing it like eighty four, eighty five, and then so when it, it was just a natural thing when in eighty eight to make me the color commentator, I guess. Um, and then uh, and then when I went to Portland, that helped me get the job in Portland as a color commentator because. You know, because I told Piper, I said, I, you know, I commentated with Gordon in Florida. And since he did that, you know, that resonated with him. Sure. So tell me about Portland. I haven't heard, had one wrestler say they got filthy rich there, but I also haven't had one tell me that they didn't have a great time working that territory. Exactly. Um, 1989 and 1990, I was making five to five and a half a week. Like, not guaranteed, but that's what you would make because you'd sure. make – 50 bucks a night for the house shows, spot shows. And then you'd make 300 or so, 300, 350 on the, on the TV house show on the Saturday Portland take, you know, the TV. Sure. Cause they did a house show TV, like, like how it is now from, you know, they didn't do it from a studio like everybody else did. 
they did it from an arena, which was actually a converted bowling alley that Don Owens bought and uh, converted into an arena. And so that was the big payoff of the week every Saturday. But I also sold gimmicks, and I usually did as well as the baby faces did, like Art Barnes, you know, Beetlejuice, and Steve Dahl. So I was making five and a half a week plus pictures, so way more than enough to live on. I mean, enough that you could have pay all your bills. You know, you could probably put some money away if you were smart. I wasn't, but luckily I did years later. Um, but, uh, you know, not, not enough to get rich on, but more than enough to live comfortably, you know, especially as a single guy. Sure. Oh, it was great. Easy travel, I heard. Easy travel. I mean, the average trip was probably 40 miles. Yeah, man, and some people would listen to that and say, oh, that's, that's you know, 40 miles each way. That, that you know, that's a lot, you know, a pretty decent drive. But, uh, you know, a championship wrestling from Florida, as you know, you'd go from Tampa to Miami and back, and it, that's eight hours round trip. So, uh, you know, 40 miles yeah, each way. After, Jacksonville after, was seven hours round trip, right? Yeah. So this, you know. Yeah, this, no, I mean, the, what I, in Memphis, it was about 2,000 miles a week. You know, like um, in Memphis, I always love telling people this because they just freak. But on on Monday, you go to Memphis for you live in Nashville usually, so you go to Memphis on Monday, Monday night, and then 220 miles, 220 miles drive back. Tuesday, you go to Louisville, Kentucky, 170 miles one way, 170 miles back. Evansville, Indiana, on Wednesday, 140 miles there, 140 miles back, and they were so smart there because. They put the main shows, the main, you know, the big, the three big towns on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday nights. They would never, you know, you wouldn't really draw on in a normal place. So the weekends were spot shows. So they always drew. It's really brilliant. Right. So and then Thursday, Friday and Thursday and Friday were spot shows. Saturday, you drove at 6 a.m. to Nashville. I mean, from Nashville to Memphis, 220 miles for TV, which started like eight, nine o'clock or whatever the hell time it started. Then you drive back 220 miles, and you do a house show in Nashville. You, know, you do a weekly house show in Nashville Saturday night, and then Sunday's the spot show, and Monday, right back to Memphis again. So it's crazy, but it still made more sense to live in uh, Nashville. Although my second time there, I lived in Memphis because I rode with the King. There you go. And, and this is honestly, this is no embellishment. You ride with the King. You don't get pulled. If you get pulled over, this is what happens. And this actually happened. We got a minivan, so it was me, him, Brian Christopher, who just recently passed. God bless. It was sad. Yeah. Very sad. Um, so me, him, Brian Christopher, I think somebody else would ride with us. Maybe, I forget who, but, oh, yeah, the Disco Inferno would ride with us. I oh, jeez. But uh, Somehow so I can't we, imagine Lawler and Disco getting along. Uh, Disco, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really remember, but, <laughs> but, uh. Me, but we drove like uh, we're driving like a hundred miles an hour, literally a hundred miles an hour. We get pulled over. The king sticks his head out the window. The cop sticks his head out the window. They wave at each other, and then we took off again. <laughs> Does did uh did did Lawler hold his uh, briefcase real tight when he drove when when you drove with him? No, why? Uh, I once I was working up there when we did a a. a, a one of those Memphis memory shows with Jimmy Hart. And uh, uh, 
He was in the. I was driving, and Jimmy was in shotgun, and Lawler was in the back, and I got you know he had all the money from the house in his uh, in his uh, briefcase, and he was holding that briefcase tighter. Like, and I'm thinking to myself, like, even you know, I'm five foot six, non-athletic Jew. Even if I wanted to try to you know try to pull over and take the briefcase and ruin my entire career uh, over a couple thousand dollars, like you know, I couldn't yeah. do it if I tried. But this guy's held on to that. I'll never forget held on to that briefcase. But uh, other than that, he's always been nice to me, and and it's a shame about Brian as well. Uh, I, I, my opinion, if you watch old Memphis, like, you know, anytime in the 80s, greatest worker in the history of business. Jerry I Lowe. totally believe that. Never seen anybody could work better than the king when he's, I mean, not now because, you know, he's way past his prime. But, man, the best psychology, promos is a baby face, promos is a heel, just the greatest worker ever. Was it confusing keeping up back then? Because everything, all the the, the house shows were a week behind uh, the Memphis TV. So what you were doing on on Saturday in Memphis, and then Monday at the at Memphis Col- at the Mid South Coliseum uh, was always a week ahead of what you were doing, like the next night in Louisville and the next night in Evansville. So like you might have lost the title in the Mid South Coliseum on Monday, but you're still defending that title and. On Tuesday and Wednesday, does that get confusing, or just kind of roll with it? It would if I was booking, but since I wasn't booking, it didn't bother. <laughs> they, they, you know, they would they would just tell you this is where you know where where this is where we're at today. This is where we're at, you know. So they just let you know. I mean, they they kept track of all that. The one thing that really sucked though was uh when you'd be in Nashville and then you'd go and you'd uh, like okay, so I lived the second time I was there, I still lived in Atlanta and. Uh, and no, let's see. No, I moved from Atlanta back to back to Memphis, but I had a girlfriend in Atlanta, so I'd go to see her sometimes after the Nashville house show because I was close. Because then I'm only three hours from Atlanta. Right. And then, uh, but then driving back from Atlanta, you get the hour time change, so you lose an hour. No, wait. Oh no, you gain an hour going there, but you lose an hour whenever you come back. So, so like if if I leave the show at, at Nashville at ten. It's really 11 in Atlanta. Right. So I'd be racing home to get to the after hours club in time, you know, you know, to try and make the regular clubs before they close, you know, let alone the after hour clubs. But I always hated that when uh, losing, you know, when you change time zones, like I love it when I'm going when I'm going west because you gain time. But when you go east, it sucks. Yeah, I was. I've never ever, you know, talked about. You talked about Vegas and being there with Impact Wrestling. I've never to this day been able to get used to a red eye. Even in my prime, when I was able to, you know, and I was young and able to bounce back, it took me about a day and a half to to rebound. I, I haven't tried it lately, but I can't even imagine at fifty two uh, if I had yeah. a couple if I had a couple cocktails on a red eye and landed an hour later, uh, probably, and it was morning. Well, three hours later, it's three yeah. hours later coming from Vegas. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, yeah, the red eye's a pain in the ass. But then again, I still use it because if I waited until the next morning, I don't get up early. So, you know, so if you take a 10, if you take an 11 o'clock flight, 11 a.m. flight, you're not getting home until 6 p.m. That's the exact reason why I've never been to Cauliflower Alley. 
I've wanted to go the last couple of years, but every time I look at flights, because, you know, I have to have a shoot job now. So it's not like all I do is the wrestling business. And then I come home and take a couple of days off. Uh, I either have to take a red eye, which would kill me. Or uh, like you said, you leave at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock and you you waste the whole day. So, uh, well, wait, but, but back back to you. So you had a T-shirt company, if I'm not mistaken. No, airbrush tattoos, airbrush tattoos. Do you still have that? Uh, we, we're in, uh, uh, Bronx Zoo, New York Aquarium, Central Park Zoo and Zoo Atlanta. It's just, uh, seasonal now. And, uh, I'm a realtor by trade. Oh, really? Yes, sir. So how many houses do you sell a month? Uh, it, it depends sometimes four or five and sometimes you just don't. <laughs> it's, well, what's uh, the average? What's the average amount of houses you sell? It depends how much money you spend. You got to have money to, you know, to, uh, to advertise and you know it used to be easy because they call it farming you know you'd go to a an area where you know people knew you like where you lived and they'd say you farm that area and that area would sort of been like yours and you know you didn't know it it was sort of like a territory you didn't right, know right. it but but everybody knew you sort of like eddie graham in florida everybody knew eddie and he was popular everybody trusted eddie so if anybody's tried to go uh you know, against Eddie, they would, you know, hit all kinds of, of walls. Uh, right. It used to be the same thing in the real estate market. Uh, but now there's so many. Dude, man, I say this a lot. You think the wrestling business is a shark tank. Oh, my God. The real estate business is a uh, shark infested. And uh, it's, you know, you're you're you're. You know, grabbing for every lead. And I'm a karma guy, so I just try to always stay above the fray and not get tied up. And, and You're a what guy? Karma. Karma. Oh, karma guy. So, yeah, I know. You me know, too. There's a lot of people, you know, that'll, like, do dirty things to get other people's clients. And I just can't do that. If some, if, if I get a lead and, so, and I call them and they say, it happened the other day. I would set up a showing and uh, I said, could I set up a search for you, you know, in a multi-listing system? And... uh and they, and the guy texted me back and said, uh, I have a realtor. And so I said, to, I wrote back, I said, you know, with all due respect, I wouldn't want to be your realtor and then have me, uh, yeah. you know, try to, to hone in on your, even though it was there, them that reached out for the lead. So no, there's no, there's no loyalty. It's crazy, but don't get me started on that. Uh, well, uh, so, but are you, uh, I, I don't do it because of karma. I know what you're saying with, with the karma thing, but. I don't do it for that reason. I try to look at it as if I don't want somebody doing it to me, I won't do it to them. If I can absolutely, you know, in 99% of scenarios. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm like that too. Yeah. Uh, you know, to me, it's like, I just don't get, you know, unless I don't get knowingly screwing somebody. I really don't get that. You know what I mean? Like I get somehow you sometimes might accidentally encroach people, you know, or stuff like that. But to just go ahead blatantly and screw people. It's kind of like, it's why I could never be a Republican. Not to start that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. So, uh, you know, Rick Steiner's a uh, real estate agent in Atlanta, don't you? Yes, sir. I do. Uh, okay. Yeah. You, I mean, cause I was going to say, if you didn't know, you should, you know, you should hook up with him, you know, as a cross pollination effect. Yeah, we've had discussions uh, about the real estate business, but uh, anyway. So you get got, recognized, right, real quick. Do you get recognized as a real estate agent ever? Not really. Like, as an announcer? Not really. Sometimes if people put two and two together, uh, the, the greatest client I ever had 
his name uh, is Jose. And, uh, you know, you, you know who Conrad Thompson is, right? Yeah, yeah. He owns a mortgage company. And so he had a lead in this area uh, from somebody who wanted to move from Puerto Rico. And his leads are wrestling fans. So, you know, usually, like I said, it's like, you know, trying to uh, to, to convince the client to to, you know, let you represent them is like a sh- uh, shark infested waters. And, you know, so it's you know, I, I never do anything, uh, uh, you know, Anything un- un- under board. underhanded, but you right. know, always try to follow up and be polite and be professional, and you know, and and I, I would, you know, like I was in WCW, you know, always uh, be yeah. above board, but but it's always a uh, you know, it's always a uh, uh, you know, interesting kind of game you play to see, you know, because they they have they play the the client has all the cards, and so they try to you know get the best deal out of you. Wait, but you were th- you're saying about the Jose guy though? Yeah, so Jose called me and. Uh, through through uh, Conrad and I said uh, you know I called him back I said this is David Penzer and he goes is this the David Penzer and I said <laughs> you mean the David Penzer ring announcer and he goes yeah and I said yeah this is him he goes I'm one of your biggest fans and I was like this this is easy this is like and, and he was great and his family's great and I found him a beautiful house in Orlando but it but <laughs> but but it was a totally different kind of uh, situation you know, it, uh, if I could have all my clients to recognize me and be yeah. wrestling fans, you know, and, and I do a little advertising on Facebook where I uh, talk about I have a picture of me with Hulk and me with Flair yeah. and the tuxedo and talk about, you know, hey, uh, well, uh, let's go find you a house and, and tell and I'll tell you some wrestling stories. So uh, I, I do try to play off that because it's certainly a lot easier than going in cold. Well, you're, you know, you're... The, the whole thing with being recognized is my my whole take on it is when you're on TV, you get recognized every day or every week, you know, all, all the time. When you are when you get off TV for three months, it's still the same. Then for the next three months, you get recognized a little bit less and a little bit less. And then about three more months after that, nobody ever recognizes you except once in a blue moon because out of sight, out of mind, you know. Yeah, and I was always the ring announcer, so nobody really cared anyway. It's funny if uh, if if I ever if, you know get invited, like I was at Starcast, and if I'd sign autographs, um, I always put a little microphone. Uh, but that came about. I was traveling with Chris Jericho and Eddie Guerrero, Benoit, and. Um, uh, Dean Malenko and we were at a Denny's after the matches and uh, there was a waitress that came up and recognized them and so she passed around a piece of paper and said will you sign an autograph for my son so you know Benoit did his you know Benoit Jericho you know so I'm signing it she's like no you too you're the ring announcer you're important and I'm signing it and I'm like he's gonna like read all these names and have no idea who I am and Jericho said put a little microphone down there it was his idea, and to this it's ever, ever since then, I've always done it. To this day, uh, while I don't get asked a lot, if uh, somebody ever you know asks me, I always do a a little microphone at the bottom and put WCW down there so they'll remember. But uh, that was Chris's idea. And, it's, uh, it's the perfect, it's the right amount of fame though, because if you have too much fame, then you're be signing autographs all the time, which is a pain in the butt. I mean, I don't mind doing it because they're fans, but it's a pain in the butt, you know, especially when you're in restaurants, but. If you have just enough fame left over, then you can get like free tickets to stuff and, you know, like the concerts, you know, get all kinds of free because you can call ahead and just say, hey, I'm Joe Blow and they'll hook you up. But you don't have to have the downside of it of being mobbed by people. So 
it's that's the perfect the right amount of fame is being formerly famous. I, I don't know. I'd rather uh, I'd rather get mobbed by people and still get the free concert tickets and all that. That all dries up when uh, when uh, you know you have no name value anymore. But thank God for WWE Network that uh, what's old is new again, and and people uh, have uh, actually are interested in my little podcast here, sitting ringside, and we have great guests like you who uh, interview me. Uh, most of them don't, but. Uh, uh, but yeah, but your fans want to know. But the people who tune into your show, they want to know about you too. So you know that way they'll learn something too. You know, so. So let me ask you a question. Uh, did you ever think at one point that your future was going to be as a color commentator long term? Because you said you were natural at it. They used you at it almost everywhere you went, Global Wrestling Federation on ESPN. And then uh, I don't think they did in WCW as Scotty Flamingo. But I know when you came into WWF as Johnny Polo uh, as manager and also a talent, but also a color commentator. Is there ever a point where you thought that was going to be your future? I never wanted it to be. Uh, hang on a second. I just had to kill a bug I found, so i got to throw it in the toilet. Sorry, I was outside playing with the dog and I found a bug on him. Um, the um, Yeah, no, I, I never wanted to do it full. I mean, I love doing it, but I wanted to be a wrestler. I mean, it's why I quit WWE because they um, they wanted me just to be, you know, an office guy, a producer, and, uh, and they were grooming me for the booking committee. But it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to wrestle. So, I mean, I love doing commentary, but... It was always second second banana to my wrestling. Why'd you leave WCW the first time? Uh, they finished me up, uh, basically. Oh, I know why. Because um, the um, Watts came in, and I wasn't the Watts type. You know, I wasn't a big, burly, you know, tough guy. I was, you know, I was working a chicken shit heel angle guy gimmick. And that's not Watts's. Uh, that's not Watts's thing. Oh yeah. no, Watts tells me like years later, Watts goes. He goes, hey, I'm responsible for you being Raven. I go, why? He goes, well, if I wouldn't have let you go, you never would have became him. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> so it wasn't, wasn't quite like that order. You know, I went to WWE and I had a, and I left there on my own terms and then created it. But that's kind of yeah, convoluted. You know, but it's, it's still funny though. That it's still funny. Convoluted logic, yeah, uh, yeah. You were the in the light heavyweight division, I believe, and uh, and he didn't really believe in light heavyweight divisions. He, uh, it, it, when you're a light heavyweight wrestler, and he, they say uh, jumping off the top rope is an automatic disqualification, you know that things aren't exactly rolling your way, huh? Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't getting on the on the top rope anyway, though. I was. A, I was more of a ground game kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, you were. Um, so then. You leave WWF as Johnny Polo, and everything changed. Uh, what was your thought process? What made you want to reinvent yourself? What went into it? Uh, it was a total 180 transformation. Yeah, um, I, and after I tell you this, I, I got to get going because I got a, I got an appointment uh, to make. But uh, the um, yeah, what happened is, and I mean, it will just continue this another time anyway. But um, what happened was is I wanted to be a wrestler and so they weren't letting me. So I was like, all right, you know, so for a while I was like, well, I'm a manager. That's okay. You know, but once they took me off and, and I was also doing the, uh, the commentary with Vince and then Lawler came back. So then he moved me to the wraparound shows, all America. And, uh, but they had me as a producer. I had a, or my office on the fourth floor was across from Pat and Bruce's. And, um, you know, so they were grooming me for the booking committee, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to wrestle. So I quit. 
And then I was talking to DDP one day and I go, and he's going, man, he goes, you gotta, you gotta give the, I, I know what it was. I was like, I was like, man, I like being a chicken shit heel, man. And he's like, yeah, but you know, cause we were just, com- you know, commemorating. And, uh, and I was like, man, but, and he's like, yeah, but nobody's buying a chicken shit heel these days. I, I go, but, but there's so much mileage in it. He goes, yeah, but that's not who's booking now. So in the, you know, in the companies, you gotta be a tough guy. I'm like, I don't want to be a tough guy. Everybody's a tough guy. He's like, I think you should go that way. So I said, all right, let me think about it. So I came up with the whole alternative idea. And really it was just a matter of, you know, the, the, the joviality that I, that I always used to um, put a, put out for, you know, put front put in front of me was just the shield to hide the, the insecurities that I really had and the, you know, and the anxieties and fears. And I decided to take that and make it into a character. And it just, you know, and then it just was a matter of putting the pieces together and, uh, and having the right place to work, which was ECW and having Paulie see my vision. He saw it even clearer than I did at first. Like, you know, I knew what I was, I knew I had something, but I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but he did. And, and so Luckily, like bookers always see themselves through um, through so one or two of the talents, you know, eyes like Vince always saw himself as as the million dollar man, but also the Patriot Lex Luger, you know, the jacked up Patriot guy, because right. um, that's how he perceived that. I mean, that's how Vince sees the world. You know, that's how he sees himself. Um, Dusty always saw himself. That's why Dusty loved PN News, because he loved the whole rap thing like he did, you know, the right. big jolly, you know, round guy. Um, Paulie saw the world through Raven's eyes. You know, Raven and Dreamer. And so, like, he, he didn't, he thought at first I was coming in to be just the comedy version of what it was, because that's how he, he, that's how he understood it. But once I started cutting the first promo, he saw exactly what I was doing, and then he totally got it. And, and that's why I've never had a better uh, working relationship. You know, like, I've never been at a more fruit, a fruitful, creative partnership than I did with Paulie. He was just, you know, he was so on my wavelength that, uh, he just got it, you know? All right. Well, hey, uh, Raven, I appreciate your time. Uh, you promise you'll come back uh, maybe after Absolutely. the holidays? Because uh, I want to talk about our time together in WCW and that famous meeting. I believe it was in Las <laughs> Vegas. Was it Las Vegas? Yes, it was. So I, d- I definitely want to get your take on that. So we'll look forward to having you back. And uh, it was great chatting with you. And uh, appreciate your time. Have a, have a, just- hey, hey, have a happy Hanukkah. <laughs> hey, listen, it was really great catching up with you, man. And I'll definitely do uh, do it again after the holidays. want to thank Raven for that interesting interview. I've, how come I feel like I've been interviewed more than I was interviewing him? Which is fine, because that's what we like to do here on City Ringside is to have a discussion. And looking forward to having him back so he could tell part two of his story. And uh, we will definitely do that in the new year in the month of January, I hope. But thank you to him, and uh, be sure to listen to his very unique podcast, The Raven Effect, on Westwood One. Folks, if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy sitting ringside each and every week, I ask you to do two things, if at all possible. Number one, be sure to spread the word. Subscribe to Sitting Ringside. Tell your friends and let them know that you enjoy this podcast. And number two, hey, please support our sponsors. Very important. I talked today about Harry's Shave Kits, and that was true. As soon as we were starting this podcast, knock on the door, kit in the mail, wet and shaved, 
and uh, was a great experience. I've always wanted to try Harry's Save Kit, and I'm just lazy, so I never did. And uh, uh, I, I would uh, urge you not to be lazy. I would urge you to order it, get $5 off any Shave Kit at harrys.com slash ringside, harrys.com slash ringside. And again, as we said, it makes a great holiday gift. Uh, my friends and family, if you listen to this podcast, Merry Christmas. You know what you're getting, but it's a great product, and I'm sure you will enjoy it as much as I did. Now, shaving's not a fun thing for a lot of people, but this makes shaving a lot funner, a lot easier, and a lot less expensive. So go to harrys.com slash ringside, $5 off any shave set and free shipping until this Wednesday, December the 12th. Hey, looking forward to next week. As always, another great guest that we'll have here on Sydney Ringside as we enter the holidays. Uh, If you celebrate Hanukkah, very happy Hanukkah to you. And uh, as we count down to Christmas and the new year and 2019, we will strive to always provide you with interesting conversations like the one today with the one and only Raven. Until next time, I'm David Penzer, Sydney Ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry football with Chris Landry. Quick fix on Radio Influence. Did want to talk about Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh, a lot of talk about him leaving Michigan going to the NFL. I don't see it happening. There's a lot of talk, nothing substantive that I'm hearing that would give me an indication that that's in the works. I'll let you know if I notice differently. And I don't buy into the rumors. It has to be something that I trust. I understand maybe the interest level. I think there's a better chance that John Harbaugh, if they don't finish well in Baltimore, getting let go and him possibly getting into the mix with either the Browns or the Packers, then I do think uh, Jim Harbaugh being a fit. I think Jim might be a little, you know, enthused, a a little um, amped up by maybe being able to make a run at Michigan now. Uh, Don't have Urban Meyer to to go up against. Maybe if you want to contradict that, you can say, well, wait a minute now. You know, people are going to say, well, Urban's gone. Now you go ahead and go on a run and beat Ohio State three years in a row or something like that. Fair point. Fair point. Don't know. I just think that uh, leaving his alma mater, uh, it's going to take a really special situation. I don't think that he's a fit in Cleveland or Green Bay. I don't think that front office in either case would want to deal with him at this point. Um, The structure of that uh, just wouldn't really work. Chris Landry brings you Landry football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.